when it comes right down to it, I, the best word I can describe of my upbringing in church was just a lot of hypocrisy. Um, I just experienced a lot of the power struggles. Um, and part of that was when you have parents that were actively involved in the churches, you know, you kind of saw the behind the scenes stuff. People getting angry with each other, not being very Christian. Um, a lot of division, a lot of um, fighting. We're gonna pretend to be good Christians one way, or at least where everybody sees it. And then again, hypocrisy, it just so, growing up, that was my struggle. Um, God was always part of life. Jesus was always part of life. I never doubted. You know, I always had belief. I always knew um, the gospel and all those things. Uh, but I just got to the point where I looked at church and I was like, I want nothing to do with this. I want nothing to do with these people. Um, as far as the adults that I saw. So come my teenage years, I, I did what you hear a lot of people doing. I was just like, I'm, I'm out, I'm done. I want nothing to do with it. Still attended church, but it was just more because there was friends there. So it was like, you know, we, we were actually going to church over in Toddville. Um, that's where my friends were. So that's the only reason we went to church, or at least I went to church. Mom and dad forced me to go. There was a good number of years where, you know, alcohol and, and other things came into life and, and doing stupid things um, was the norm. and actively and knowingly living against what Jesus said but yet going to church on a Sunday and everybody's still like oh look at how great you know he is and the gifts that he has and whatever it is and finding reasons like let me get up and sing and just getting that praise so that I can see how I perpetuated I became the hypocrisy that I was so frustrated with but the story on how I kind of started <laughs> how God started to bring me back in was um we were attending church in, in Toddville and um, one of my very good friends at the time uh, was my quote-unquote um, sin partner in the sense of we would go do things uh, with things you know like partying and stuff and one night we were uh, <laughs> it was probably two in the morning and uh, we uh, we were not in a good condition as far as what we had been doing and I looked at him and I said, it was a Saturday night, and I said, dude, you gotta get me home, I gotta go to church in the morning. That's how, I mean, that's the hypocrisy of it. It was like, you know, I gotta go to church in the morning. And he looked at me and he, he, he said, well, I'm not ready to go home yet, I wanna stay out all night, you know, cause he's like, I got more things I wanna do. And I remember just looking at him very frustrated and this was my response, I said, fine, I'll stay out, this is basically the deal. I was like, I'll stay all night with you, but you gotta go to church with me in the morning. Cause my attitude was, if I'm gonna have to suffer, and go to church, you know, in this condition, you're gonna suffer and go to church with me. So, so we did, we stayed up all night. And uh, I, I would love to say we went to church hungover, but it wasn't hungover. We were still, cause we had been pretty much drinking all night long. And we went to church and it was just a normal Sunday for me. And I was kind of sitting there the whole time, like, oh, he's gotta be hating this, you know, I'm, cause Anyways, we get in the car and we go to leave and I looked at him with kind of this smirk on my face like, hey, and I asked, I was like, how'd you like that? And he just looked at me, he's just like, that's what I've been missing. And this is like, he's like, I want to come back. And I, I, I'm going to be completely, <laughs> completely honest. My thought was, well, that is not what I wanted you to say. You know, like my thought would be, you know, well, that sucked and, and whatever. So it, it was really funny. That's kind of the thing that then made us he started coming to church with me. Next thing I know, um, we're no longer going out and drinking anymore and partying. We're going to church and helping with youth groups and, and doing that kind of stuff. And his sister started to come with us and it just, it was this weird transition that was not expecting whatsoever. You know, looking back over my life, I, I never have a moment where I could ever point at and say that I didn't comprehend or didn't understand the gospel that I didn't believe. I mean, it was always um, extremely real to me. But the, the issue wasn't necessarily belief. Um, the issue was more, it was just common. And I don't know if that's the best way to say it. Jesus, I mean, he was just, yeah, he was just always there, right? He was always, it was just a part of life. There was no, you know, growing up, there was no moment of, you know, we didn't have Jesus and then all of a sudden there's Jesus. It, he was just always there. He was always talked to, you know, talked about in, yeah, 
say your prayers, read the Bible, go to church. Um, it was just common. There was no excitement for me. There was no passion or why it should even really matter. And what really flipped a switch for me in my faith came through uh, teachings of John Wesley. And Wesley came down to this finally. He met Christians that were full of life and full of the Spirit and, he, and, and it changed him so much because he's like, what do you have that I don't have? He said, I'm trying to remember exactly how, you know, paraphrasing, paraphrasing it, but he said, for all of my life I served, or I, I approached God as a servant and with a servant mentality. He's like, but once I understood Jesus and understood the gospel and understood what this is all about, he says, I understood that I approached God as a child, not as a servant. And, and Wesley was like, that changed everything. You know, this, this duty mentality, this, this, well, this is what you're supposed to do and this is how you're supposed to act. And this is, you know, this is the actions that you're supposed to live by. And, and it really hit me all of a sudden with this idea of like, well, that's me. You know, I'm doing all this because it's what's expected. It's what's always been expected. It's, it's how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to act. You're supposed to go to church. You're supposed to read your Bible. You're supposed to pray. You're supposed to help other people. You're supposed to do all this thing. But it was all done with a servant mentality. Like, if I don't do it, the master is going to be angry. If I don't do it, God's going to be angry. And I'm, I'm just trying to appease God. And, and, it was through Wesley's teaching that that's what struck me was it's it's not about doing it as a servant it's doing it because I'm a, I'm a child I'm a child of God I've, I've been accepted I've been redeemed I've been um, welcomed in my brokenness I'm, I'm, I'm that prodigal that's been embraced I'm that prodigal that's been received back and it's this mentality of I, I want to do it now not because I have to I want to you know it's I want to do this because I want to thank you pastor David um, I think it, it helps anytime we get to know each other's stories um, and, and it's one of those things that we, that we can always learn from and we can always grow from. And I don't know um, how many of you have a story similar uh, to Pastor David's. And, and, and I don't mean um, showing up to church drunk, although whatever. I mean, let's talk. Um, but what I, what I mean is, is in this is, is having a heart that says, I do because I'm supposed to. As opposed to having a heart that says, I do, because I've been blessed beyond measure. And so I would imagine that some of you have a very similar story. And, and frankly, if we're being honest, some of you might be living that story now. You know, you're here, you're watching online, whatever it is. You, you might very well be in the place that David found himself in. Which is like, man, this is what's expected of me. It's what my parents expect. It's what my grandparents expect. It's what my, my spouse expects. Whatever it is, that this is, this is what's expected of me. And so we, we kind of do what's been laid in front of us because that's the way it is. And, and I get that. And I want to encourage you uh, to, to let David's words live in your heart for a minute. Right? To, to let that simmer. Let it marinate. Let it, I'm hungry. Can you tell? Like, let it, let it stew together. I, it's weird. I know. But, but here's the thing, right? Is just to, to let it, let it do something. Not, not just to know it, not just to process it, but, but start to, to think about what it would be like if you loved God because he loved you first. What would it be like if you understood that the things that you do for God, you don't do so that you can check off a box and you can get your name on, on the nice list? What would it be like if you understood that God has lavished such love on you, that he calls you child? And in response to that, things just flowed from your life and all of a sudden it made sense and you could look at the person that brought you to church. Um, you could look at your neighbor. You could talk to your coworker. You could have a conversation that says, you know what? That's what I've been missing. 
That's what my heart's been longing for. Right? And that's the gospel. And, and you know, last week as, as we, we worked through this series, um, looking at the different signposts of Scripture, helping us to understand God's story for us, last week we got to the point um, where um, the king... The Messiah, the one that had been prophesied about and talked about for so long, right? The moment finally came where God pulled back the curtain and stepped into human history. That God eternal, who has always existed, right? Like, like Jesus wasn't a creation of God. Jesus is God. Right? Like, like Jesus has always existed with the Father. John 1.1 1, 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's always been. And then at just the right moment in human history, God pulls back the curtain, and, and he steps into human history by choosing to be born as a child. Fully God, fully man. We talked about that last week. And, and this week, though, we get to the apex this week is the thing that it's always been about as we continue in these signposts. And it's the gospel. It's the cross. It's the tomb. And it's the resurrection. Right? The reason that we celebrate Christmas, right? The reason that we celebrate God coming in flesh is because of what happens on Easter. And so as we continue with these signposts, we are really going to understand um, that, that the Messiah came, but that that's not the point of the story. The Messiah's coming was a necessary, albeit fantastic, ridiculously awesome, grace-filled, God just pouring love out on us part of the story, but it's not the point Right? Jesus being and living and teaching is not the point of the gospel. It's important. It's great. There's a reason they put those letters in red. Because they're really important letters. It's things Jesus in the Bible. You, some of you are like, what's he talking about? Well, if you open your Bibles, in the New Testament sometimes they put Jesus' words in red. And I would show you, look there. And you're like, oh, okay, so... I mean, read your Bible. But, but here's the thing, right? That's not the point. It's good. It's helpful, right? Jesus living this life and us learning from his teachings and us understanding what he did, what he taught, and how he encouraged us to be. That's all good. It's awesome. We should immerse ourselves in it. But the point of his coming, the point of his coming was in the cross and in the resurrection, and it's the cross and the resurrection, when rightly understood, that gives you the joy in your heart that David was talking about in the video. It gives you the joy to say, you know what? I don't have to just do these things because I always have. But it gives you the joy to say, there is a God in heaven that loves me so much that he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but instead will have everlasting life. And that kind of love from that kind of God, rightly understood, does not have me checking boxes, but it has me thanking him with all of my heart and dedicating myself to him. Listen, this signpost matters uh, because it's the apex of the story of redemption told in Scripture. It's the hope realized, but it, it also matters because, frankly, it's the, different between, it's the difference between going through the motions and loving your life in Christ. And too many times, some of us are stuck going through the motions of church. We're stuck going through the motions of church. Instead of loving our life in Christ, reminds me. Uh, I, some of you may know this this story. It's it's about um, uh, D. L. Moody. Uh, if you don't know, D. L. Moody is is uh, the founder of Moody Church in Chicago, which of course birthed Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Um, it's a big deal. Moody was was a great evangelist um, and, and and an excellent church builder. But um, 
about midway through his ministry, although he had built a large church, um, he had built it mostly um, out of fear and a whip, right? Um, He stood at a pulpit with a sign behind him that said, God is love. But the thing is, Moody never preached about the fact that God is love. Instead, what he preached is that God is behind the sinner with a sword, and he is ready to cut you down if you don't repent and turn from your wickedness. And that's the God he preached. That's the God he shared with people, that God detests your sin, and he is ready to cut you down because of it, and so you better get right. Right? These are the preachers that stand on the street corner, right? Turn or burn. This is, this is his attitude. And um, he was he was on a, a speaking engagement um, in Europe at the time, and he met a young preacher, um, um, high accolades for the young man, Harry Morehouse. And as he got into some dialogue with Harry Morehouse, um, the guy said, uh, Harry said, hey, you know what? I would love to come to Chicago, and I would love to preach at your church. Moody says later in his memoirs, he said, I looked at him, and, and he had a beardless face, And so I thought, well, he can't even grow a beard. He's much too young to preach. And so when the time left, uh, the time came for him to leave for Chicago, he got on a boat without saying anything to Morehouse, without telling him he was leaving. He just up and left, thinking, well, that would be the end of it. That he didn't even say a word to him, so there's no way Morehouse would want to come and preach in Chicago. But turns out that a few weeks later, he got a telegram uh, from Morehouse saying, hey, I'm in New York, and... Um, if I'm ever in Chicago, I would love the chance to preach for you. And so Moody thought, well, that's not really going to happen. But, but instead of being mean, he just sent back a letter that said, a cable that said, you know what, if you ever find yourself in Chicago, don't come to Chicago for this purpose. But if you ever find yourself in Chicago, we'll talk about it. Figured that would be enough to deter him. Because why else would he come to Chicago? But then a couple of weeks later, he got another telegraph that said, hey, you know what? I'll be in Chicago on Thursday, and I would love to preach for you um, this week. Moody, as it turns out, had to go on another speaking engagement um, at the end of the week, and um, he kind of wrestled back and forth with whether he let the man preach or not. He finally took it to his, his leadership team, and they said no. You can't let him preach. We've never heard him before. We don't know what he'll say. He'll probably make a mess of things. But Moody felt convicted, and so he, he told Morehouse, yes, you can preach. Um, and he told the elders, I've invited him to preach on Friday and Saturday. I'll be back on Sunday, and I'll fix anything he messes up. And so he goes, and um, he comes back, and he asks his wife, honey, how did he do? And his wife says, it was spectacular. He was excellent. You wouldn't like him. And he says, well, why wouldn't I like him if he was excellent? He says, well, because both days he preached from John 3.16 and he told us how God loves us and he's for us. And that that's the most important thing for us to know is that God cares for us and he will do anything for us. And Moody said, well, I can tell you this right now, he's wrong. So Moody made arrangements for Morehouse to come back and preach on Sunday and he went to take notes so that he could refute the errors in his preaching. Morehouse walks to the pulpit, opens up the, the word, and he says, you know, I've, I've tried all day, all day to come up with a new passage to preach for you. But I just can't find one as good as the first. So open up your books to John chapter 3, verse 16. And he continued to preach about the love of God. And, and here's what Moody wrote in, in his in his uh, memoirs. He said, I'll never forget the closing words of that night's sermon. Here's what Morehouse said. My friends, for a whole week, I've been trying to tell you how much God loves you, but I can't do it with this poor, stammering tongue. If I could borrow Jacob's ladder, climb to the heavens, and ask Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, to tell me how much God loves sinners, all he could say would be this. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The sermon stuck with Moody so much that he called it his second revival. He called it his, his second salvation, right? He was saved, 
but he completely misunderstood the love of God. And from that point on, he no longer preached about a God that was behind sinners with a sword, but a God that was pursuing sinners out of love. And the right understanding of that, the right understanding that God loves you with that kind of passion, he is not pursuing you to get you, right? He's not pursuing you to cut you down with the sword in your sin, but he's pursuing you to love you because he desires you, because he came for you, because he died for you. This is the crux of scripture. This is how we fit in the story of redemption. This is what God has done. It's what he talked about in the garden when Adam and Eve fell. It's what he promised through the coming of the Messiah. It's what Jesus told us he was here to do. And it's what happened on the cross. And that's the signpost we celebrate today. It's this hope realized, right? David talked about hope He told us that hope, it's not wishful thinking, but it's certainty. And we've had this hope all through the story of Scripture. And on the cross and through the resurrection, the hope that we held is now realized in the resurrection of the dead and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the signpost that we celebrate today. And it's what Paul unpacks for us in 1 Corinthians 15. So go ahead and open your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to look at Paul's... Um, exposition to the church in Corinth. Um, and I'm going to tell you up front, if you don't know uh, 1 Corinthians very well, if you don't have that um, understanding, um, this is a church that's not doing well. This is a church that is mired in sin. This is a church that has a, a, a terrible understanding of the love of God and what God desires for them. In fact, you could say that this was a church of David Condry's to a degree. Sorry, dude. I mean, like the old David Condry. Not like the new David Condry. That's 2 Corinthians. Read that one. No, but this is a church of people who have just become okay with their faith. They've just now started to look at it as normal. It just is what it is. Yep, God came. Yep, he, he lived. Yep, he died. Yep, he was resurrected. Um, and, and that's it. It's ho-hum. It's no big deal. And they just go on living their life. It's, they check their boxes and then they do whatever else they want because they've checked their boxes. And Paul has spent the first 14 chapters correcting and reminding them and rebuking them and encouraging them in God's love. And we get to 15 here, and he starts to talk specifically about the resurrection. Let's jump in. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. This is Paul saying, okay, all right, now I've been encouraging you and I've been reminding you, and now here's the thing. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, Christians, let me remind you of the good news that I already told you about. Right? Like, like when I was there on my missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas worked their way through Corinth. They established this church. And he says, this is what we preached to you when we were there. It's the good news. Let me remind you. And now he says, I'm calling you not just to remember it, but to stand firm in it. It's the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Right? If, if it's true for you, then you'll believe it, right? And you'll stand firm in it, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. And, and what's interesting here is, is Paul is, is pointing out this dissonance, this disconnect in the way that they're living. You know, basically, he's saying to them, look, I shared the gospel with you. You received the gospel with joy, and now you're acting like it's not even real. He says, so, so you have to stand firm in the gospel that you accepted if you really accepted it. By the way, in case you, you want to have an argument later, um, uh, just a fun argument, not like a serious argument, but about like, you know, can you lose your salvation? And, and what does it mean to be called? And, and what is this? See, see we call this, the, the fancy word for this is, is the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. The doctrine of perseverance of the saints says this, only those that persevere will be saved, right? Um, The doctrine also says that only those that persevere 
are saved. And so we get this idea, no matter what camp we fall on, that that the idea here is that for your faith to be real, you must persevere to the end, right? One camp would say you can believe it, and then you can walk away from it. Um, Another camp would say if you believe it, you won't walk away from it. But regardless of this, if it is real for you, if it ever was real for you, you will hold fast till the end. It's perseverance of the saints. And so we get this idea. Paul says, look, look, look. You welcomed it, so now stand firm in it. Believe it. Do something with it. And Paul's pointing out this problem in the way that they live. Right? It's saying one thing and believing one thing and then living and acting like another is true. And here's my question. I wonder how many of us are stuck in that same thing. I mean, I... I just have to wonder how many of us are stuck in this, in this place where we will say, yes, we believe in Jesus. Yes, he's God's son. Yes, he died for my sins. And I mean, look, look at this. It's like, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so we could be made right with God through Christ. Um, we know that to be true. We're like, yeah, I believe that. I believe that God Um, sent Jesus, his one and only son, the eternal God, came into human history, lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He was resurrected. So I believe in him, and I get to go to heaven. My sins are forgiven. Yes, that's true. And then what we do is we just live a normal life. Like we say, yes, absolutely all of that's true. And then we'll just go live a normal life. And that's the problem Paul's pointing out to them. He's like, look, man, no, you got to hold fast to this thing that you believed. Stand firm in it. It's the good news that saves you. And it either is or it isn't. Right? You either believed it or you didn't believe it. Or you believed something false, but you can't have it both ways. This is Paul's issue with the church here. And so I just, I, I just want to I, I encourage you in this right now. Like, are you stuck making the same mistake that the church in Corinth is making? Like, are you saying intellectually, yes, I believe that's true, and then living like it's not? Because if you're saying, yes, I believe it's true, and then living a life that acts like it's not— then you're preparing yourself for rebuke and disappointment. Because here's the words, right? It's the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. If you stand firm, if you persevere till the end. Right? And and the message is simple. Like, we know these words. For God loved the world so much, he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Why? Because God didn't come to the world this time around. He didn't come the first time to judge the world, but he came to save it. He is not behind the sinner with a sword. He is behind the sinner pursuing them in love. And if you believe that, then it ought to change the way that you think and live. You shouldn't follow Christian teaching because you have to. You should follow it because you've been made new. We keep going. Paul, Paul continues, and he says, so, so if, you, if it was real in the first place and you believed it, then you ought to stand firm in it. And he says, this is what I taught you. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. I love it. He tells us twice. It's just as the scripture said. Like, he's like, I'm giving you what was given to me, which was given to everybody because it's in the scriptures. Christ died for our sins, and then he was resurrected from the dead, just like the Bible said. This is what he's telling them. He's like, it was always told, this is what happened. And he says, I'm passing on to you what was given to me. You know who it was given to him by? Jesus Christ himself. Right? Paul had rejected Christianity. He had rejected the faith. He was persecuting Christians. And he was on the road to Damascus. He was from Jerusalem. He was walking to Damascus. He was actually on his way to persecute, jail, and ultimately kill people that would not reject Jesus. And on the road, Jesus Christ himself comes to him and says, Paul, 
Saul is his name at the time. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and, and he explains to him that he is God. He is the Christ. He is real. And then God instructs a man named Barnabas to come alongside Paul and to teach him truth and to help grow him up. And, and so Paul's saying, look, I'm just giving to you what they gave to me. It's the most important thing because it's the gospel that changes lives. It is the most critically important thing. And it's either true or it's not. And he goes on and and he says, and look, I can prove to you that it's true. Because not only did he die for our sins and then he was resurrected, but here's the reality. He was seen. Like this is front page worthy kinds of stuff. How many of you still read actual physical newspapers? Anybody? It is like, do you get it delivered to your house? work? Okay. Because here's the thing. Like my parents still get a newspaper delivered to their house. I know because when I show up, they're all piled outside. Like they never make it in. But this is front page newsworthy stuff, right? Extra, extra, read all about it kind of stuff. God died for you. Then he was raised from the dead. And you're like, yeah, that seems wishy-washy. That's kind of fake news maybe. But no, no, no. He's, Paul says there's evidence for this. He was seen. And not just by one guy, but he was seen by over 500 people. I love this. He says he was seen by Peter. Peter, who carries all of the authority in the early church, right? He was the leader of the apostles. He's the leader of the early church. He was seen by Peter, right? Peter, the one who said, you are the Christ. He was seen by Peter. And then not only Peter, he was seen by the twelve. And it makes sense, right? Because these people would have known those 12. They would have heard about those 12. And they would have been able to clearly see how those 12 radically changed their lives. Because Jesus was alive. He was dead, then he was alive. And it radically changed their lives. They would have seen these men had gone from cowering and running away to now these men who were, who were preaching in the name of Jesus. These men who were being beaten and scourged and whipped and refused to recant. These men who were being thrown in jail because they would not refuse to preach Jesus. These men who ultimately were beheaded, burned, crucified upside down. Like, the church would have known. Like, those 12 men saw the risen Jesus, and that instituted the change in the way they lived. Seen by Peter, seen by the 12. And then he says this, and and then he was seen by 500 of his followers at once. 500 of them. And I love this part, right? It's not like me saying to you, oh, Jesus was seen by 500 people, and you're like, prove it. I'm like, well, I mean, I can't. I can just tell you that it was true. Right? But Paul says he was seen by 500 people. And then he says this, and most of them are still alive. So if you want to prove me wrong, if you don't think it's true, go ask them. And you know what we don't have recorded for us in human history? We don't have one recantation of somebody who went to show that Jesus didn't rise from the dead and say, you know what? Paul was wrong. I talked to those people and they said, no, we didn't see him. That doesn't exist, right? Because he did. And so Paul says, you go talk to them. And then he was seen by James, his brother. And then later he was seen by everybody else. Like, like he was seen by all of these people. And Paul says, oh, and last of all, I saw him. I love this though. He says, I saw him as one who had been born at the wrong time. What Paul's talking about here is he is the only one that has seen Jesus after his ascension. So you, you understand the, the difference here. What, what happens is um, Jesus died on the cross. He was buried in the tomb. Three days later, he rose from the tomb. And as an alive again savior, he was witnessed by these 500 plus people. But then after 40 days, right? The word tells us after 40 days, Jesus ascended into heaven and they could no longer see him. Right? We read about that in Acts 1. Jesus was ascended to heaven. And after he's ascended to heaven, no one sees Jesus anymore. Except Paul. 
on the road to Damascus, Jesus, who's already ascended, appears to Paul and speaks to Paul and teaches Paul. And so he says, I saw him too, but I saw him like one born at the wrong time, right? Like, like I didn't see him the same way everybody else does. And then he says, in fact, right, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle because of the way I persecuted God's church. Paul says, I can't believe he talked to me. I saw him and I can't believe it. I didn't deserve it. Because I used, to, I used to blaspheme against him. Some of you here, some of you here have, have blasphemed against God. Whether it's through your words. Some of you have blasphemed against God with your actions. Can I be, can I be just completely honest with you? There are times when I blaspheme against God. Because of the way I live my life. Like, this is the whole point, right? Because we know and we accept, and then we live a life that doesn't honor God. It actually paints God in a terrible light. That's blasphemy. We think of blasphemy as words we say, but you're, you can blaspheme with the way that you live your life. And Paul says, I was the worst blasphemer of them all because I looked at people that said, I love Jesus, and I killed them for it. He says, I don't even deserve any of this. But he says, whatever I am now, it's all because God poured out his special favor on me. And then he says this, um, and not without results, right? Like God poured his favor out on me and it wasn't without results because I love this. And it's not bragging, I promise. I'll explain it. He says, um, I have worked harder than any of the other apostles, right? That seems like a brag. Like, come on, Peter, what's your problem? right? Come on, Bartholomew, let's get to work. I've worked harder than all of the other apostles. Then he says this, but it wasn't me. It was God who was working through me by his grace. It makes no difference whether I preach or whether they preach, because we all preach the same message that you already believed. Here's Paul's point. He says, I work harder than they do, but it's not me. Here's what it is. He says, I know what I was saved from, and I know what I'm saved to, and I don't have a choice. And church, this is, this is my thing for you here. If you know what you're saved from, and you know what you're saved to, then what in the world are you living your life for? I mean, it makes, for me, when I look in the mirror sometimes, it makes no sense. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. Like there are some times when my life makes sense and it works. But there are a lot of times when I look in the mirror and my life just makes no sense because I know what I've been saved from and I know what I've been saved to. But yet I still have no idea what in the world I'm living my life for. Because today's actions don't resonate. They don't make sense with a life that's been saved from the pit of hell to this glorious future in heaven with God. My life today doesn't add up. And this is, this is what's driving Paul nuts as he's talking to the church in Corinth about this. He's like, you, you just, this has to be different for you. It has to be different for you. I'm reading this and I'm like, Matt, it has to be different for, for you too, right? Because I know what I've been saved from And I know what I'm saved to. And so my life ought to make sense in that context. But instead of my life making sense in that context, half the time I'm just stumbling through, living however I want to live, and and I'm not dedicating myself. This is why Paul says, no, 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 no. Like, Like, man, I was unworthy to be saved. I was saved from the pits of hell. I was saved to the glory of God and this eternity in heaven with him. And so I am going to pour myself out for this. He's like, I, I am working harder than anybody else because I know what I've been saved from and I know what I've been saved to and my life is worth nothing if it's not for the glory of God. And, and, and I'm going to read for you. You can look, follow along here. You see 19 up there, but, but 12 through 19, he just continues and he starts to talk about this resurrection. What does it mean? 
And he says, but, I, but, but tell me this. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying that there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless. And your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God because we said that God raised Christ from the dead. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, verse 19 here, if our hope in Christ is only for this life, then we are to be more pitied than anyone else in the world. See, this is where I want to challenge some of your thinking. There are many of you And, and this, is, this is introspection time. There are many of you that if you found out tomorrow that all of this was false, that Christ wasn't real, that Christ did not die as a sacrifice for your sin, that he did not raise from the dead bringing you new life, that you were not saved from the pits of hell and destined to spend eternity with him in heaven. If you found out today that that was a lie, your life would not look marginally different tomorrow morning. And I mean, that is something that you have to wrestle with, right? Because if the fact that Jesus is not real, the fact that he didn't conquer death, if that reality doesn't cause you, if it was false, if it was fake, and, and, and it didn't cause you to live a life substantially different than the one you're living now, then that's a problem. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, man, your life should look so different that if the gospel isn't true, then you are to be pitied. Do you know what that means? Oh, now, now get ready. You got to wrap your head around this. That means that people that don't believe the gospel, people that think it's fake, should look at you in pity. Why? Because your life is so filled with following after God that if it's not real, it is the most wasted life ever. Later in scripture, Paul's going to tell you how he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was whipped, he was starved, he was left out in the cold, he spent many nights um, stranded actually in the sea because of shipwrecks. Eventually he was murdered, martyred for the faith. Why? Because he believed that Christ rose from the dead. And here he's saying in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, look, living the Christian life isn't just a nice way to live. Right? Don't live the Christian life because you want to live a life with good morals. Don't teach your children to believe in Jesus because you want them to be good people. Right? Because it's either real or it's not. He either was resurrected from the dead like we told you he was, or he wasn't. But be sure, because if you're wrong, then you are to be more pitied than anyone else. Listen to me. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, your life ought to look so radically different that people that don't believe in Jesus look at you and they pity the fool that you are. Because who lives like that? Who lives like that for no reason? Man, who embraces self-sacrifice that way? Who would pour themselves out for the sake of somebody else? Who would devote themselves more than anything else to speaking the truth about this God that you need to know? And we sacrifice relationships for it. We sacrifice, in other parts of the world, freedoms for it. Safety for it. We sacrifice everything for this God. And, and the world looks at us because they don't believe in Jesus. They look at us and they say, you are to be pitied. Oh, you fool. 
man, if, if people that don't know Jesus don't think you're weird, then you're not living a life that puts Jesus first. That's what Paul's saying. You know, we sum it all up. That, that's what Paul's saying. Listen, that's what Pastor David was saying. Right? You, it's either true or it's not true. He finishes with this. But in fact, Christ has died. He has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who've died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Listen, Adam sinned and it ushered in death. That's why we are not born innocent. We are born in sin. We are born as sinful, broken people. Right? Remember, we've talked about this. I don't know how many times we're a square when we ought to be a circle. We're the wrong shape. Because sin is in the world, we're the wrong shape. And because we're the wrong shape, even when we do our best, we won't fit. And because we're born in sin, we don't do our best, we do stupid. Right? And Adam and Eve did that. Adam and Eve ushered that into the world. And here's what he says. He says, just because everybody dies because of that one man, death comes through him. Guess what? Salvation comes through the other man. Jesus Christ. The resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. This is real. And so this is Paul wrapping up this chunk of scripture. And then actually, if you're interested, you can keep reading in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about what this resurrection from the dead will actually be like, right? Um, And these new bodies that we get that don't perish. And it's really a great, very interesting thing to keep reading. So so dig in on that um, as you leave here. But, But here's the point. He's talking to the church in Corinth, and he's saying, I preached to you what was most important, and you believed it. But now your lives don't really look a whole lot different. And so he's saying, either you believed what was true, and you ought to be acting like it's true, or you believed what was false, and you should just go ahead and live your life the way you want. He says, but here's what I'm telling you. It was true. And you can check with Peter. You can check with the 12. You can check with 500 other people that saw him. Or you can believe me because I saw him as one born out of time that he did raise from the dead. And if he raised from the dead, then your life ought to look different because the redemption and the resurrection comes through that one man. That's the point. That's what Paul's trying to say here. That's why this signpost matters. It is the hope of redemption, but a redeemed life as it's realized, listen to me, it looks radically different. It doesn't check boxes on Sunday and then live a life somewhere else that, that goes contrary to that. It is the life that understands that God has lavished such love on us that our right response, like Paul, I know what I've been saved from. I know what I'm saved to. So I know what my life should be like. And I know who it should be lived for. And that's, that's why we come together today to celebrate communion. Right? As we... And I thought I brought one. Hook me up. Thanks. All right. Very reverent. I know. Thank you. It's a good toss. Here's the deal. It's what we celebrate with communion. But I'm going to ask you not to take communion lightly today. As you, as you, as you eat the bread... Christ says, this is my body that's been sacrificed for you. It's broken, right? As it hung on the cross, his body was broken, beaten, mangled. Why? For you. Because all of the sin that you deserved was actually put on him. Think about that. As he is hanging on the cross broken, and that's what the bread represents, right? As he is hanging on the cross broken, he says, this is my body. It's broken for you. It took all of your sin. I know what I've been saved from. I've been saved from the consequences of sin. And then as he poured the cup and he passed the cup, he said, drink this. This is is a picture of the new covenant found in my blood. Right? I know what I've been saved from. Death and separation from God. I know what I'm saved to through the blood. I'm saved to new life with God for eternity. 
right? And as we take communion, that's why communion, listen, if you're a member of the church here, if you're a visitor at the church here, communion is for everybody. Here's the only thing we ask, that as you partake in communion, that you be a committed follower of God, that you be a part of the family, that you have surrendered yourself to Jesus. Because here's the problem. Too many of us take communion lightly, and so I'm going to ask you to really think about this. If you peel off that top layer, you'll get the wafer, and then the next layer gets you the drink. But I'm going to ask you to really think about this, and maybe this is a day when you decide to skip and and you need to get some things right with God. Or maybe this is a day right now where you say, God, forgive me, and you know that his grace will forgive you, and you commit as you take communion to moving forward differently. But as I eat this, thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. I know what I've been saved from. I've been saved from the pits of hell where my sin should cause me to go. And as I drink this blood, the new covenant, I know what I'm saved to. I'm saved to new life in Christ and an eternity with God. But none of that makes sense, right? I can't rightly eat the bread and rightly drink the juice and say thank you for those things if I'm not actively living a life that makes sense in light of this. Man, if your life doesn't make sense in light of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, then communion is not for you today. Before you take communion, you need to confess that. You need to repent of that. And you need to embrace what he has for you. And I'm just going to pray for us. And if you, if you have some business to do with God, then I'm going to ask you to do it in your heart right now. If you want to hold off on communion and have a conversation with me uh, before taking it, I understand that too. But, but listen, let's not do this lightly. Let's do this knowing what we're doing. Let's do this knowing what we celebrate and what it means. Heavenly Father, God, come before you today and and we just, first of all, we thank you. We thank you for your body and, and your blood. We thank you that you sent your one and only son who stepped into human history so that he could live a perfect life and die as a, as a substitution for us. God, we know that as he died on the cross, that he took our sins onto himself. He saved us from our sin. He saved us from death. He saved us from the pits of hell. And Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that ushers us in to this new covenant that covers us, the blood of the lamb that brings us in to this um, new relationship with you. God, that allows us to be right with you and to spend an eternity with you. And Father, I confess to you in my own heart that that there are times when the life that I live doesn't make sense, that it's a blaspheme against you because of what you've saved me from and what you've saved me to. I pray that that, that, that you will forgive me of my sin, that you will forgive me of that foolishness, and that you will help me walk and live in a way that honors the sacrifice you made on the cross, the new life that you've given me. And Father, I pray that for those here, those that are struggling, that they would confess in their heart the same thing, and that they would commit to moving forward to live a life that honors you. Father, we just love you so much. Amen.